This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. This is the third in a series of three stories with emphasis upon entering the kingdom of God. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would attend your word even as you have promised. O Holy Spirit, you who are the author of this word, lay it deep in our hearts. Change us by your word that we might be more and more like Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have come to an important juncture in the Gospel of Luke for Jesus. In just the next chapter, chapter 19, he will enter Jerusalem. Jesus is about to enter and complete his work. The work that he came for. To redeem a people to himself by dying a death upon the cross, by being buried in the grave, and by rising again for our justification. And so it should come as no surprise to us that Jesus, as he is about to enter into that last 
stage, that critical moment of his work, now in chapter 18, he begins emphasizing with great stress what it means to enter the kingdom. As we looked previously in chapter 17, he told us that the kingdom was coming and that it was already here in some aspect. And earlier in chapter 18, he told us and showed us that we need to be aware of our need in the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Just the passage before this, he reminded us that we need to trust the Lord like children in order to enter into the kingdom. And now what Jesus is going to do is tell us that we need to be ready to act upon our trust. That we need to be ready to act properly. And so this morning we see a problem we have and a solution that Jesus provides. The problem we have is that we are continually thinking that we are rich. And the solution that Jesus brings to our eyes is that we need to be knowing that we are poor. We may think we are rich, but the kingdom is found when we realize that we are poor. And so Jesus tells us this story of a rich young man. A rich young man who comes to him and speaks to him. He wants to use this story to direct us on how to act upon our trust for him. Because you see, we often are tempted to think we know what God wants. We may want to trust the Lord. We may want to act upon it. But really we respond with what we want. We think we know what God wants based on our own desires. You know what that's like, don't you? It's anytime you've received a Christmas gift or a birthday gift from someone that they're very excited about because it's what they would want. It would be, for example, if one of you out of a a good motive of generosity came to me on my birthday and presented me with a full set of the best kind of tools available. I can hear it now. You'd be so excited. Look at this drill. You have no idea what you could do with this drill. Oh, and look at the way this screwdriver works. And look at the socket set. And look at the wrenches. Now, you'd have to realize that the whole time you'd be talking, my eyes would be glazing over. Because I don't know what the tool version of a black thumb is, but I have it. Maybe it's a black thumb because you hit your own thumb. I don't do anything with tools. I don't want any tools. Any tools that are in my house, I guarantee you belong to my wife. And yet, you might be so excited about this because you would assume that I would love this and everyone would love this because you love this. And that's a picture of somehow, sometimes, the way we approach God. We know what we want, we know what we like, and we just assume that God is kind of a better version of us. And that God must love what we love. But you see, Jesus wants us to see that there is a complete disconnect between a holy, righteous God and a sinner. And so what happens here in verse 18, as the ruler comes up, the ruler comes up and asks Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the first thing you have to realize is that this is a very important story. It's one of those few passages 
that is included not only in Luke, but also in Matthew at Matthew 19, and also in Mark at Mark 10. Jesus wants us to be sure to know about this story. Each of the synoptic gospel writers includes it. And they tell us a bit about who this man is. The first thing that we know about this man is that he is a man of means. We see that from verse 23. He was extremely rich. Now, the adverb that is used here for extremely is very powerful. It is an addition. It is an additive word. We might say he's stinking rich. He's filthy rich. He's so rich, he doesn't care at all about money. He's got more than he needs. But he's not just a man of means, he's also a man of energy. Because you see, Matthew tells us in chapter 19, verse 20, that he's a young man. So he's a wealthy man, but he's also young and full of vitality. And the third thing we see is something that Luke alone tells us. That he's a ruler. Now, I don't know what that means, exactly what his position would be, but you have to picture that as this man walks up, he is a well-known, well-stocked, well-thought-of man about town. He's got it all going on. He's got the money, he's got the energy, and he's got the power. And even better yet, he comes up to Jesus as what we would term a seeker. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think it is a common occurrence in our evangelism when someone walks up to you out of the blue and says, oh, by the way, could you show me from the Bible how to get saved? Usually, we have to have a conversation, build a relationship, try and and find ways to, to see where they're coming from and to talk about important and eternal things. Here, this is the ultimate seeker. He walks right up to Jesus and he says, how do I inherit eternal life? What do I do? He's a man who's important. And now his question, though, is an interesting one because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's an interesting thing about this question. Within this question is an assumption. You see, the man assumes that he has the ability to perform the things for eternal life. Actually, the Greek is, is a bit more emphatic. It's a participle, and actually what he's saying is, after having done what, will I inherit eternal life? You see, it's not as if he's coming to Jesus and saying, I have no idea, I have nothing to bring. It's as if he has a list, and he says, how many things are on the list, Jesus? Is it 15 or 20? I've done 17. Show me where I stand. He's very confident in himself. And if if we are honest with ourselves, that is very applicable to you and to me. Because, you see, we sit here in a church. And we know about the things of God. We carry around Bibles. We know we're supposed to pray. We know we're supposed to study. We know we're supposed to go to church. We know all of these things that God loves. And so we assume maybe we're just missing a thing or two. And it's made worse because not only are we in church, we're in America. When was the last time you met an American that didn't think that they could come up with something to solve a problem? 
I mean, after all, we invented plastic, right? We invented the atomic bomb. We can do anything. Transcontinental railroads, aircraft carriers, whatever we set our mind to, we can do. And you see, if we are not careful, that mentality slips into us with respect to spiritual things. And so Jesus challenges him in verse 19. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I think at first reading, we are tempted to see Jesus being a bit snarky here. He's trying to poke at the rich young man. But I don't think that's what's going on here. There's there's a cultural detail we need to understand. And that is, it would be a breach of Jewish decorum, of rabbinic decorum, to call anyone but God good. As a matter of fact, in the Talmud which is sort of the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, the five books of Moses. Not once does any rabbi call anyone other than God good. And so Jesus picks up on this. The man has come to him and he's not just trying to pay him a compliment because you don't pay this kind of compliment in Jewish society. He must think Jesus is special. He must have heard of what Jesus has done, perhaps the miracles that he has performed. Perhaps he's heard some of the teaching that he has taught. And yet at the same time, he comes to Jesus and he wants to set the terms of entrance into eternal life. He says, the terms are doing. Jesus, you can give me input on how much or what. But I've laid down the terms. Is that your expectation Of heaven? That you get to lay down the terms? That you maybe get some help from Jesus or the Bible. But you get to lay down the terms as to what you need to do. But there's something more than that. We see then, beginning in verse 20, it's not just about what we are to do. The question comes up, what have I done already? Jesus begins with him in verse 20 with the law. He says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now Jesus does something that we, I think, would be very reluctant to do. Here you have this rich, powerful, energetic seeker, and the very first thing Jesus does is he leads with the law. Jesus, haven't you taken a course in evangelism? Don't you know you shouldn't be so harsh with people right out of the gate? Maybe you should learn more about him. But Jesus doesn't do that. He comes right at him with the law. And it's interesting, the portion of the law that he quotes is the portion that deals with our relationships with others. If I can put it this way, Jesus gives him the easy part of the law. How we relate to others. Lying, stealing, murdering. And the man gives an answer in verse 21. He says, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, this is a sincere answer. I don't think you should hear this answer with a sarcastic voice. I don't think he's being overly arrogant. I think he's being sincere. Because any good Jewish man would have performed his bar mitzvah to be a son of the commandment at age 13-ish. 
And from that point on, he was to be responsible. From his youth, he would have to follow the law. And the man is simply saying to Jesus, I know God's law. And from my youth, from the very beginning that I've been responsible, I have been careful to keep it. And the language is vivid. He says, all these I have kept. And the word here for kept is the same word that we would use for somebody who is on guard duty. He says, I've been very guarded about the law. I haven't been lackadaisical about it. I've been awake. I've been vigilant. I have worked my best to do this. It's a sincere answer. The problem, though, and what we need to realize is that it's an incomplete answer. You see, the man limits his answer to the things that are external. He doesn't understand the breadth of the law. He is thinking about simply external obedience. And it's not an arrogant answer because I think he might say, I have many friends who have kept the law from their youth too. We understand what this means. We don't break into people's houses and steal things. We don't hit people over the head with swords. We don't lie in a courthouse. But you see, he doesn't understand the breadth of the law. You see, it's the same way that some of our young people might answer this question here in church. You need to keep the commandments. And they would say, but I do. I honor my father and my mother. I treat them with respect. I clean my room. I do my homework. I do all of the things that I should. But they miss the heart of the matter. That is, it's not enough for you to clean your room. You must be joyful in your obedience in cleaning your room. It's not enough to do your homework. You have to do it without whining and moaning and complaining. It's not enough to honor your parents. You must not in your mind contradict what your actions and words say. And this is true for each and every one of us. We think we are keeping the law in full when our minds and our hearts say something different. And when we limit the law to the external, that's how we think we can keep it. Sincerity is not enough. Jesus then responds to him. And he reminds him of what he doesn't want to do. Now, Jesus doesn't denigrate the answer of the man. Now, he could have looked the young man right in the eye and said, No, you haven't. You haven't kept the law. Do you realize how big the law is? He could have said there's so much more to the law than what you think it is. Now, why did Jesus not do this? It's true. You see, I think the reason Jesus didn't do this is because if he had, that would have pointed the man to working even harder, to having an even bigger list. Because that's our tendency, isn't it? Think about it in the world of sports. Someone tries to do something that they're not able. Someone tells them, you'll never dunk a basketball. What's the first thing they do? They go out all day long trying to dunk a basketball, trying to see if they can do it, trying to figure out techniques. You can't hit a curve. What do they do? They get in the batting machine for hours and hours and hours and hours trying to hit the curve. You see, that's how we're wired. 
We want to do, we want to succeed, we want to earn our way. And Jesus does not want to point us there. You see, instead, what Jesus looks at him and he says, there is one thing that you lack, in verse 22. Now, I don't know about you, but typically when someone says something like that, you expect sort of the cherry on top of the Sunday. You expect a final small thing. You've already done pretty much all of the work. There's just one corner of the house you haven't cleaned. There's one area of the garden you haven't weeded. And Jesus says, you only lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Could you imagine the look on this man's face when Jesus says that? One thing? Do you know what you're asking, Jesus? You say it like it's minor. It's one thing, but it's not a small thing. That's a huge thing. And you say, I've left it undone? This is like you expect me to have done it. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus tell him to sell everything he has? I don't think it's because it's something that's normative for each and every one of us. The pastor is not telling you to go out and sell everything that you own now and give it to the poor. Now, I'm not saying the opposite. Because some of you may have things you need to sell. Some of you may have things that are wrapping your heart up like a vice. Some of you may need to get rid of things to get close to God. But that's not what Jesus is saying for everyone at all times. Because if you think about it, if that's what Jesus was saying, he would be giving the man something else to do. Check that box and you're done. Okay, it's harder to sell everything I want than not murder somebody, but I'll check the box, Jesus. That's not what Jesus is doing. You see... Jesus is giving him something very hard because he understands that the man wants heaven, but the reason the man wants heaven is for his own enjoyment. You see, that's a temptation, isn't it? We want heaven because we think we'll get ice cream sundaes every day. Or because we think we'll be free from pain. Or because we think we'll live in a mansion. Or because we think our pleasures will be found. But you see, Jesus says that heaven is not about us and satisfying our needs. Heaven is about God. And anything that gets between us and God gets between us and heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is actually doing is moving from the easy to the hard. He's given him the easy commandments, told him he can't keep those. And now he says... Are you really keeping the first commandment? You know the one that says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what Jesus is saying. And the heart of the young man is revealed. We're left with the distinct impression that he will not do what Jesus says. The man was ready to work, wasn't he? He was asking for more work. But he can't give up his money. It actually shows us that he can't keep the Tenth Commandment either. His heart was imprisoned to covetousness. And you see, Jesus was showing him and us that we cannot do what we think we can do to earn heaven. The man is sorrowful beyond measure. He is afflicted, the word is. 
So the question then comes to you. Are you willing to give up everything for Jesus? Maybe it's not money for you. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a reputation. But you see, Jesus calls upon us to move everything out of the way that stands between us and God. And the solution that Jesus brings to us then is that we must know that we are poor. He does this here in verse 24 beginning. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now notice, Jesus has true compassion for this man. He is showing him a painful truth. Mark gives us insight into Jesus' motive here. You see, when Jesus speaks to the young man, Mark says, he loved him. And the implication is because he loved him, he spoke these difficult words to him. Jesus loved him enough not to pretend. Not to leave him in a place where he could not get to God. Jesus is a man of true compassion. And the answer that Jesus gives is to point us away from ourselves. There is delicious irony here. The man comes to Jesus and he says what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, do this. And the man says, no. And walks away. Isn't that interesting? The irony there that Jesus points this out? It's because it was too hard for him. What he really wanted Jesus to do was to reassure him that he had already done. That he'd done enough, but didn't need to take on something too difficult. And the irony is, is that we think of wealth as making things easier, don't we? I mean, we live in a world surrounded by wealth. The poor in our nation have greater blessings and benefits than most of the known world. Do you know how many people around the world would kill for water that comes out of a faucet and isn't diseased? A roof over their heads? A car? A store filled with food where you can go and buy things? We have pleasures. We have blessings that kings and emperors did not have throughout most of history. And Jesus tells us that the problem is that these things can get in the way. All we need to do is look out at the church in the world to see the proof of this. Where does heresy thrive? Where in the church is Jesus' deity mocked? Where is the resurrection questioned in the church? Where is the Bible thought to be a simple fairy tale book in the church? It's not in China. It's not in the deepest parts of Africa. It's not in South America or in India. It's in Europe and in America, isn't it? Where the church is wealthy and rich. Our money gets in the way of us seeing God. And Jesus doesn't want us 
to fall prey to that trick. And he gives us a wonderful illustration in verse 25. He says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we look at this, and immediately we say, Now what could that possibly mean? And what we do is we begin to interpret it. And we think, you know, there was a gate in Jerusalem called the needle. That's what Jesus must be talking about. And the gate is narrow and you could only get a camel through if you unburden the camel and the camel goes down on its knees and walks through. And Well, there's a metaphor for prayer. Isn't that good? Only one problem with that. There is a gate called needle. It was built in the Middle Ages. That's not what Jesus was talking about. We think, well, you know, the word for camel sounds like the Hebrew word for cable, like the thing you tie ships to a dock with. So Jesus must be saying, hard to get a big rope through a small thing. No. Stop interpreting it. Jesus is trying to give us an absurd example. What Jesus is doing here is he is picking the biggest thing that a common person in Israel would have seen. A camel. That's probably the biggest item that anyone in ordinary Israel would have ever seen if they hadn't traveled. And then he takes the smallest thing that any of them would have seen, a needle, and he says, could you imagine fitting the biggest thing through the smallest thing? It's like saying, it's easier to put a battleship through an iPhone transistor. That's absurd. Exactly. (laughs) That's Jesus' point. He's not saying that it could be done. You know, because in Jesus' illustration, you could be a thousand times better at camel pushing than me. And neither one of us are going to put a camel through a needle. It doesn't matter about our skill. It doesn't matter about what we think. It doesn't matter about our experience. It's impossible. And the disciples understand this because they respond. You see, the assumption in those days was that those who were rich were blessed by God and that they were closer to God and that they were more likely to be in the kingdom of heaven. And so, how do they respond here in verse 26? They say, if it's that hard for somebody who's rich, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus says... Well, first of all, he doesn't dodge their question in verse 27. He answers it head on. He says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. He doesn't say, it's not as hard as you think. Think positively and you can do it. He doesn't say, well, just do your best and God will make up the rest. No, he looks right at them and he says, you're right. You need to change your categories entirely. You cannot do. It is impossible. You are not in control. God is the only one that makes this possible. God is the one who takes the M out of impossible. With God, all things are possible. Because the gospel is the power of God to do the impossible. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Because, you see, it's easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven.
But guess what? Rich men enter heaven. Ask Abraham. Ask Boaz. Ask Job. What is impossible with men is possible with God. But what you have to do is you have to trust in God, not in things. You need to act upon your faith and trust in God. And this brings with itself impossible blessings. Peter responds to what Jesus says here in verse 28. He says, see, we've left our homes and followed you. Peter's saying, we've done what you've said, Lord. Look around. No boats. John doesn't have any nets. Matthew doesn't have any tax collecting stuff. We just followed you. Jesus says, by way of encouragement, he responds to them so directly. He says, truly I say to you, amen, I say to you. Jesus frequently says this 61 times in the Bible. Interestingly, only five times in Luke. And of the five, twice in this chapter. Jesus is trying to get our attention specifically in this chapter. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or mother or sister who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. You see, it begins with looking to God. It doesn't mean we don't care about things, but it means... We have to care more about God. And if we seek God, then other things will be added unto us. Now, this is not a crude investment strategy. Jesus is not saying, if you abandon your rust bucket, God will give you a new BMW. He's not saying, if you abandon your shack, you will get a mansion. That is not what he is saying. He's speaking in terms of spiritual blessing. That no matter what you give up, you will get peace and joy, and love, and community. And you know, friends, there are people on this earth that would give millions and billions of dollars for that. The blessings that we get from God are beyond anything we can imagine. What do you have in the way between you and God. Are you ready to give it up? Do you want God today more than anything? Jesus tells you it's impossible. It's impossible to give those things up. It's impossible to come to God. It's impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven on your own, of your own strength. It's not about building a better checklist. It's not about being more diligent. You see, Jesus also promises that if you trust in Him, He will make all things possible. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For all things are possible with God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that you love us enough not to leave us in our own sin, not to allow us to deceive ourselves. And so, Lord, we ask that you would 
Bring us your word. Challenge us. Sharpen us. Point us to the Savior. That we might know you. That we might give up doing. And that we might trust. Even as a child. Trusting in you. This we ask. In the name above all names. The name of our great God and Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said. Amen.